Revelation 21. So um, many times as a pastor, I have been called out to hospitals and uh, stood at cemeteries with families. And oftentimes we've turned to Psalm 23 or we've turned to John 14 or we've often turned to Revelation 21. And uh, if it doesn't ring, you know, to your memory bank right now, you will see how incredibly precious it is uh, to see these promises at the end of the book of Revelation and to know that they are true. These words are faithful and true. Before we jump into the verses, just a little bit of uh, backfilling. We've moved from the fate of the evil, unbelieving world to the future of those who belong to God. And the question that maybe we should be asking tonight is what kingdom are we truly pursuing? If you are part of the kingdom of God, your future is incredibly bright. If you don't belong to the kingdom of God, your future is incredibly bleak. There's no two ways about it. The end of Revelation 20 showed us that bleak picture for the unbelieving world when we read Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. We went on to see this great white throne judgment. We saw the book, the book of life open, the books were open, the dead were judged according to the books and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was cast, tragically, sadly, into the lake of fire. And that was really the close of chapter uh, 20. Uh, the unbelievers not found in the book of life thrown into the lake of fire. In Revelation 20, verse 11, when we saw that great white throne and him who sat upon it, we saw that from his presence earth and heaven fled away. And because this judgment is at the end of what's called the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, mentioned six times in Revelation 20, the thousand years, the thousand years, the thousand years, and the fact that it now says that heaven and earth in verse 11, chapter 20, fled away, there is a connection that many Bible scholars make between Revelation 20, verse 11, and Revelation 21, 1, where it talks about now a new heaven and a new earth. And the debate, and just to give you a little backdrop again on the debate, is that there are some people who believe that the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in at the end of the millennial reign of Christ. So new heavens and a new earth arrive at that point. There are some that believe that the new heavens and the new earth are ushered in at the beginning of the thousand years. And there are some who believe that there is no literal thousand years. Those who are in the camp of the no literal thousand years do have their Bible verses that you need to be aware of. One section that they would appeal to is Matthew 25, where Jesus is depicted as being seated on his throne and all the nations stream before him and he separates the sheep from the goats. And so they say that seems to be a judgment that happens all at the same time. So, and then, and then there's just simply a separation. So they have their verses. Do I believe their view? No. <laughs> but I think it's important for you to understand a little bit of wh why they come to the conclusions that they come to. 
There is premillennialism, which I think most of you are in that camp. You believe that Jesus returns before the thousand-year reign of Christ. There's postmillennialism that believes that it's after. He returns after the thousand years, and perhaps we're in the thousand years right now. And then there's amillennialism. They don't believe there's any millennium. Or they believe that maybe it's symbolic and it's not a literal thousand years. And so what we have here before us in these uh, eight verses is what's called the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. We're going to get a little bit into the new Jerusalem as well. But notice in 21.1 it says, I saw. John has been seeing the book of Revelation. I saw this. I saw that. And he sees a new heaven and a new earth. New heaven, new earth. The Greek word for new is kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S. It speaks of new, especially in freshness. If you look it up in a Greek lexicon, it respects the form recently made. It speaks of fresh, recent, unused, and unworn. Uh, It respects the substance, a new kind, or that which is unprecedented. You could define new as new in nature, with an implication of better. The earth and the heaven will be new and improved. Don't you love those kinds of products? It seems like everything that's out there has a version of new and improved. We will be both new and greatly improved in the resurrection. Remember how we were talking about the resurrection body? And we were all... Praising the Lord, especially if you're a little older. New and improved sounds really good. Well, there is a connection between the new heavens and the new earth and the resurrection of the dead. It's found in Romans 8. I put it before you for your consideration as you consider your view of the end times. Look at Romans 8. Paul is painting the picture of this present life and what's ahead And he's talking about what we go through, how we suffer. He says in Romans 8.16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, Romans 8.16, that we are children of God. If children, we are heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time or this present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, Romans 8.20, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. And notice what it says here. The redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one uh, also hope for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And so there is this groaning. Creation is personified here, given personality here. Sometimes you read in the Bible of trees clapping and so forth. And it's this idea that creation is waiting for the redemption of our bodies. That's another way of saying the resurrection of the children of God. Because it seems to know that when we get our makeover, when we get our resurrection body, it's going to be resurrected as well. If the two are in concert one with another, in other words, if the resurrection and the renovation of the planet go together, it makes a pretty good argument that the new heavens and new earth are ushered in at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ. Just a thought. It's not something to be dogmatic about. There's good scholars on both sides of it, and they have their verses. In 2 Peter 3, Peter is talking about the end of the age, and he's talking about how mockers will come in the last days, 2 Peter 3, just a little bit before the book of Revelation. And he, he mentions how they're ignorant of the facts of the past, of how God flooded the world and so forth. And he gets to what we would consider end times uh, teaching, which is very uh, relevant to this topic. And, and here's what he says. This is 2 Peter 3, 7. He says, the present heavens... And earth, 2 Peter 3, 7, the present heavens and earth would exist now by his word, by God's word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now, I think we'd all agree that that day of judgment is the day of the Lord, when the Lord deals with the ungodly world. We've been looking at that. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you. He's not wishing or not willing or desirous that any perish, but what? All come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And I think like a thief pertains to the unbelieving world in which the heavens... Now, we're dealing with new heaven and a new earth. That's our topic tonight. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will what? They will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed. Luo is the Greek word. Literally, you could translate this. Loosened with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, this is what is ahead for the planet. There's going to be new heavens and a new earth. But first, the current heavens and current earth are going to be destroyed. Peter says, since all these things are to be destroyed, if you have a King James, New King James, it says dissolved in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening, speaks of speed or eagerly awaiting or earnestly desiring the coming of the day of God. I think that's just another way of saying the day of the Lord. On account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, what are we looking for? We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which what? Righteousness dwells. 
Now, we've often said, as we turn back to Revelation 21, that the millennial reign of Christ will be a time when he rules and reigns in righteousness. It will be a time of peace and righteousness. Because of the radical nature of the cataclysmic judgments of God, it is a pretty reasonable argument to make that after the world is destroyed, not by water this time, not like the flood, God said he would never do a worldwide flood again. He would never destroy the world that way again. But he is going to destroy the world in the future by fire, which doesn't sound so pleasant. <laughs> and it's, it's going to be dissolved. And then Peter says what we're looking for is new heavens and a new earth. This is why it's a pretty compelling thought to think that the new heavens and new earth come after the judgment and they are part of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now you could read other commentaries and they see a chronological order from Revelation 20 at the end of the chapter into 21 and they believe that it happens at the end of the thousand years. Again, you don't need to live and die with this argument, but you just need to be aware of it. And there's some practicality to it in this sense that the world's gonna be pretty devastated by the time the day of the Lord's over. Would you agree? We've been reading through these chapters and it's gotten pretty ugly, right? A third of this died, a third of that, you know. And so you're like, well, what's left? Well, that's why this language might lend itself to the new heavens and the new earth being part of the thousand year reign of Christ. It's an exciting thought to think that everything will be new during that thousand years. Some people see this as the eternal state. But I do think that we are talking about the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ, where the wolf and the lamb lie down together, where they will not hurt in all my holy mountain. And I don't know what the, the newness of it all is going to be, but it's going to be new in nature, qualitatively new, fresh, pristine. You know, you, maybe you've seen some movies where you've seen some different kind of landscapes and colors, and you go, wow, that, that's pretty incredible. That's Hollywood movie making, but imagine what God can do with his paintbrush. We can already see it in the sky, right, when we watch sunsets and things like that. What's going to be the exact nature of this newness? We'll get some descriptions of the new Jerusalem as we go on in chapter 21 and 22. But it is just kind of exciting to think about what things are going to be like. The new heaven, the new earth are coming. John says, 21.1, Revelation, I saw them. For the first heaven and the first earth, what happened to them? They passed away, Revelation 21.1. And there is no longer any sea. The first heaven, the original heaven, the original earth, pass off the stage. Are they replaced or renovated? Interesting thought. Is it a new planet or is it a renovated planet? Well, this language, that there's a first heaven and a first earth, seems to indicate that there may be a second one. However, there is some language that you read about in the flood where everything was destroyed by the flood, but the planet did not cease to exist. It's just that God destroyed it and then made everything new again or started over again with Noah and his family. So that's some of the language that you're dealing with there. And then the bummer for all surfers, there's no longer any sea. And all God's people said, dude, 
Really, man? That's heavy, man. How's little Raw Reese with a surfer? It's heavy, man. Heavy in my Chevy. Anyway, we won't go there. So, does this mean that there's no more water? No, because we know there's a spring flowing from the throne of God, and there's a the tree of life bearing fruit and so forth. So it doesn't mean no more water. Does it mean no more oceans? There are theologians that argue that the sea in the ancient mind wasn't, th this setting or context is not so much about the elimination of what we might consider an ocean. But in the ancient mind, the, uh, the Jewish mind, for example, the sea was tumultuous, unpredictable, in fact, in Revelation 13.1, I think it's the beast that comes out of the sea. And so they saw it as a source of darkness, evil, that which is unpredictable and even uh, frightening. And so it may be that the sea here is more about that uh, which is evil. So uh, there's first heaven and first earth pass away, and then there's no longer any sea. Um, there's... Something that's mentioned in a commentary that I was reading, and it's uh, by Leon Morris. And here's what he says. In the end, the seething cauldron, he's speaking about the sea, fraught with unlimited possibilities of evil, will disappear. The sea is one of seven evils John speaks of as being no more. The others being death, mourning, weeping, pain, the curse, and night. If you add the C to that, that's seven. Seven keeps coming up in the book of Revelation. And so we can see that this may be a good way to think about it. The C, uh, the first earth passes off the stage, the first heaven and the sea. That which belonged to the first order of things is no more. It's replaced. The sea is never still. It's a symbol of changefulness, a source of evil and so forth. And that's probably why it's mentioned here. Uh, there's an interesting thought as we move on in Revelation 21 that I just throw out, again, for your consideration. Sometimes when you read about the description of the New Jerusalem, it seems almost synonymous with the bride of Christ. The imagery almost seems to cross over, or intersect, or even envelop one another. So when he's talking about the New Jerusalem, is he talking about the church as well? What is it? Well, I think you can find in 2 Corinthians 5.17 an interesting parallel to where we're headed. It says, If anyone be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So there have been many, if you read commentaries on the book of Revelation, who have pointed out that there's a parallel between 2 Corinthians 5.17 and the new uh, person we are in Christ and the new creation. I don't want to push it too far because I do think people push it too far. But it is interesting to think about that we are new in Christ and we are anticipating the fullness of our redemption, that is the, uh, the uh, redemption or resurrection of our body. In Isaiah 65, 17, it says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. That's Isaiah 65, 
17 and 18. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. And then the end of Isaiah, if you turn over there, it's the last chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66. There's 66 chapters in Isaiah. How many books are in the Bible? 66. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about the way that the book of Isaiah lays out. The last chapter of Isaiah uh, says these words, and it's again in reference to this new heavens and new earth and what God is creating. And this is verse 22, so the very last chapter, Isaiah 66, 22 says, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, Isaiah 66, 22, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they shall go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. And they shall be in an abhorrence to all mankind." John describes the fulfillment of Isaiah 52.1 where Jerusalem, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the capital of the new earth, if you will, is going to put on beautiful garments like a bride. If you go, just flip back to Isaiah 52, take a peek. There's so many scriptures in Isaiah that uh, relate to the uh, book of Revelation and the second coming and so forth. But here's what it says. Isaiah 52.1 says, Awake, awake. Clothe yourself in your strength, O Zion. Clothe yourself in your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean will no more come into you. Shake yourself from the dust. Rise up, O captive Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the chains around your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And so in imagery of that, a bride getting ready for her wedding day, the book of Revelation chapter 20 will kind of move that way, but before, as you're turning right, just take a, just park for a second in Matthew 19. Matthew 19, and check out these words of Jesus. He mentions this time, and he uses the word, the regeneration. Check this out. This is Matthew 19, 27. Matthew 19, 27 says, Then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, that is the renewal, recreation, or renovation, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you could write in your margin, Matthew 25, you also will, shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers, father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The regeneration, if you take a peek again at verse 28 of Matthew 19, is often a word that denotes restoration of a thing to its pristine state. It could speak of renovation, renewal, restoration of life after death, or even the renovation of the earth after the deluge of the flood. 
So back to Revelation 21. So the Bible tells of this coming time when everything will be made new. It says, even they, the earth and the heavens will perish, but you endure, speaking of God. They will wear out like a garment, like clothing. Thou will change them and they will be changed. Psalm 102, 26. And Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. Listen to that again. Heaven and earth will what? Will pass away, but my word shall never pass away. So even Jesus said the current heavens and the current earth will pass off the stage. That's Luke uh, 21, verse 33. So this is the first part of Revelation 21. New heavens, new earth, passing off the stage. We often say when someone dies, they pass away, and there's no longer any sea. And John says, 21, 2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Again, the word is kainos, the new Jerusalem coming down. It's architect and builder is God, if you will, Hebrews 11.10. It was coming down out of heaven, this new Jerusalem from God, coming down, I take it, to the earth, made ready, this new Jerusalem is made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, on a wedding day, it's always interesting as a pastor to observe the time that it takes a woman to get ready for her wedding day as opposed to a man. Don't mean to offend you, ladies. This is just the reality of the world. Guys, take a shower, take a couple looks in the mirror, pretty much ready. <laughs> they get the rented tux, those shiny shoes, and they're good. The ladies meet at 5 in the morning, even if the wedding's at 6 p.m. at night. And they have curlers and extra female presences to do makeup. And it seems that blow dryers multiply and so forth. And anyway, whatever happens, right? But there's a process of getting ready. And we guys appreciate you ladies getting ready. Because when that bride walks through those doors, oh boy. I always try to focus on the groom and just see what's, what's going on. Right, <laughs> there's usually a combination of tears and tremors and things going on, and oftentimes a big smile, because it's just just such a huge moment. Jesus said, "I go and prepare what a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also." It's interesting to think about that there is a new heaven and a new earth, and it would appear that during the thousand-year reign of Christ, where we rule and reign with the Lord, is on the earth. It's a new Jerusalem. If we are there in the new Jerusalem, by the way, there are some scholars that believe the new Jerusalem hovers above the earth. That is one view that would be an orthodox view. But I don't see it in the text. So I'm going to come to the conclusion that the New Jerusalem literally comes down out of heaven to the earth. And that's where Jesus is literally reigning. Therefore, if the thousand year reign is literal, you and I will be in physical resurrected bodies for a thousand years in a new earth, ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ. Hanging out with lions, 
playing with snakes, whatever you're going to do with your free time. I, I don't know. I like to tell this story because it's relevant to this issue. Some years ago, I uh, played racquetball with a wonderful African-American brother. He was just so fun to play racquetball with, great personality. And uh, he would, I would make a shot and he would say, now that's a shame. And I'd say, no, that's not a shame. That was a good shot by Pastor Michael. And he would miss a shot and he would say, now that's a shame. We had very competitive racquetball matches. It was always a lot of fun. And then he disappeared from the gym and I had heard that uh, from somebody that was attending the gym that his wife had passed away and she was only in her 30s. He was probably in his mid-30s at the time. So he was just gone and I didn't have his phone number so I didn't talk to him. But anyway, he showed up back up at the gym some months later and I said, hey bro, I, I heard about your wife. I am so sorry that this happened. And I said, how are you doing? And he goes, man, I, I'm just taking it day by day. But he goes, before my wife passed, she she had heard something from a pastor, and she said that this pastor said that dying is kind of like being born. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, well, when you are in your mommy's womb and you know, you're in this water wonderland, that's all you know. You're in her womb, and you don't understand that there's people on the other side that have been waiting for you, and they've been, they've been painting this room, and they got a crib, and they got all these toys, and they've been painting it in Dodger colors. Did you hear that? Dodger colors, Steeler colors. Anyway, but you don't know how much your arrival has been, has been anticipated. And then all of a sudden there's this flood of light and you're born into this world and you have parents that have just been waiting for you to get there. Dying is kind of like being born. When we die, we don't know what to expect. This is all we know. But what we're going to find is that we're going to end up somewhere where they've been waiting for our arrival. The Lord of glory has been waiting, and I believe he painted my mansion in Dodger blue. Come on. All right, no, I don't believe that. It's, I don't think it's going to matter. <laughs> Although Tommy Lasorda did talk about the great Dodger in the sky, but I think his theology's off. So, And I know what you guys are thinking who are angel fans. Angels are more biblical. I understand that. We're not even going to go there. <laughs> it's been a while. This Jesus whom you saw. Yeah, thank you for that. That was good. Since they want anything. Yeah, I know. This Jesus whom you saw go into heaven is coming in the same way that you saw him go. That was almost 2,000 years ago. Do you think the people who were living at that time thought, man, it's going to be at least 2,000 years between the first and second advent? I don't think that they understood that. This new city is likened to a bride. One commentator says, the city is pictured as a bride because it contains the bride and takes on her character. Let's see a little bit about this bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He shall dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. If you look at Revelation 21, 9, it says, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls 
full of the seven last plagues, came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And then he's carried away in the Spirit, and then he begins to describe the city. So you can see the direct parallel between the bride and the city. There's some people who argue that the city, the New Jerusalem, represents the church. And they see the foundation stones with the names of the apostles and say that the, in Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. They see, if anybody be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. And they see the new Jerusalem as a symbol for the church. It's certainly true that God dwells among his people. In fact, you are the temple of his what? Holy Spirit right now. And in what we would call covenant language, it says they shall be his people, 21.3, and God himself shall be among them. God will dwell among his people. Covenant language found in Jeremiah 7.23, eleven four, 31.1, Ezekiel 11.20, 34.24. I'm sorry. You'll have to go back and get the recording. 2 Corinthians 6.16. Um, think about covenant language. Marriage is what? It's a covenant. We have a covenant with our God. We now live in the new covenant. Our down payment is the Holy Spirit in modern Greek, arhaban. It's an engagement ring. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit unto the day of redemption. The promise God has given us is like an engagement ring. It's his spirit. His spirit bears witness with my spirit that I'm a child of God. And the down payment I have of my future redemption is his very presence in my life. God will dwell with his people. God himself shall be among them. Matthew 5, 5 says, Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. John 1.14 says Jesus came and tabernacled among us. One of the major feasts of Israel is the Feast of Tabernacles. It uh, remembers the time that God was in the midst of Israel and their formation of the tribes literally made a cross with the sanctuary uh, there in the middle. God tabernacled among his people. And so God will be there. And that's glorious enough, isn't it, that we we will see God. How long will we gaze at him? (laughs) Maybe the first hundred years that we're there? (sighs) (laughs) Wow. Won't even need to wear sunglasses. Just wow. You have new eyes, you know, it'd be all right. But if that isn't glorious enough, it won't be just about us gazing upon the Lord, which for me is enough, frankly. I just want to see God. But even more, it says, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. God, we will not only be with Him and see Him, in the beautiful covenant of what we might say is Eden restored, the way things used to be before the fall, before the curse, before the serpent and the poor decision-making of our first parents and what death 
sin and death have done, causing a separation between us and our God. That's going to be gone. The curse is going to be no more. And it would appear that one of the first things that God will do is wipe away every tear from our eyes. Some people say there's no tears in heaven. Uh, well, if the focus here is the New Jerusalem, maybe there's some tears there just at the beginning. I'll let you wrestle with that. But God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no longer any death. Can you imagine living in a world where death is no more? I can't wait till the funeral business goes out of business. I'm sorry if you're a mortician. You'll find other things to do. One of the things that I didn't realize going into the pastorate was how many phone calls I was going to get related to death. I was not prepared for it. And uh, in my office, I have the pamphlets of uh, the last 15 to 20 memorial services that I've been part of. I've been keeping them just to remember times that I've stood with you guys and other families and just stood upon the promises. And every time we've been out there at a cemetery or in a church, I have preached the gospel because I believe it. And we've cried. And it's been hard. And one day, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no reason to cry anymore or mourn anymore. I don't know what makes you cry. I look at our world sometimes and there's a lot of things that make me cry. Those things will be gone. A place where you don't have to worry about your mom and dad or your uncle or aunt or your child place where you don't have to worry about a beloved pet or we all live under the shadow of death. It's a terrible thing. But one day it will be gone. And with it, mourning's going away, crying's going away, and I have this underlined in my notes, pain. <laughs> I appreciate ibuprofen. I really do. But one day, pain. You know how many people deal with, and, and, and you guys, some of you deal with this, with chronic pain. Chronic. Gone. The first things have passed away. Of the first order of things, and you could talk about the polluted earth because of sin, the current heavens and earth under the curse, the creation longing, anticipating the revealing of the sons of God. When all of this happens, the old things related to the curse and death will be no more. Praise God. No more. You don't have to live with that cloud hanging over your head any 
more gone. It's almost hard to conceive of. But here it is. Death will be swallowed up for all time. Isaiah 25, 8. Some of you may be thinking, is it going to come back? Nope. Death, Isaiah 25, 8, will be swallowed up for all time. All time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Isaiah 35.10 says, They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And Isaiah 65.19 says, There will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, will be no more. No more devil, no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more disease, no more pain. It's coming. And the one way you get into this beautiful existence is you believe. You know, you read this and you think, is this too good to be true? Sometimes it feels that way. And I think that's why the verse that follows says what it says the way it says it. And he who sits on the throne, verses 5 through 8, will show us a little bit more about the new state of affairs. How are things going to be? What will they look like? He who sits on the throne after he's made these incredible promises. He who sits on the throne is who? It's God. And he says, behold... I am making all things new. And he said to John, write, for these words are what? They are faithful and they are true. Would you mark it? Because I know some of you look at this and you go, is this really going to happen? Is it too good to be true? God has staked his reputation on it. I am making all things new. I did it once. <laughs> and I'm going to do it again. I'm making stuff over again, and we're going to get rid of some of the stuff that ain't so good. In fact, it's all going. Amen? Amen? And he said, you can write this down in the book of Revelation, John, because these words are just like me. They're faithful and true. That's what God is. He has magnified his word Above all of his name. Psalm 138 verse 2. God keeps his word. He keeps his promises. He's staked his reputation on it. And he said to me, it's done. The plural is here. It could be they are done. It probably relates to the new heaven and the new earth. Specifically. And then God says, just in case you wondered if I had the power. I am the Alpha and the Omega. By the way, that's. First and last letter of the Greek alphabet. Alpha and Omega. We saw it in Revelation 1.8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. You could say it this way. I'm the beginner and the ender. <laughs> I started it and I'll sum it up when I'm good and done. I wound it up and I'll bring it to a conclusion. I'm the beginner. I'm the end. I'm the middle. I am that I am. Moses says, who should I say to the people? Send me. By the way, I can't talk very well. 
I am that I am. You tell them I am sent you to them. How's that? Pretty good. Not I was. Not I will be. I am. That enough for you, Moses? Okay. <laughs> and by the way, who made the mouth? You did. <laughs> and I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring, so we know there's water. You can write down Revelation 22.1 because there's a spring. There's a river of life. Uh, he showed me 22.1, a river of of the water of life, clearest crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We'll talk about that as we, get, we go there, but later. But if you're thirsty, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life. And someone might say, what's it going to cost me? <laughs> Nothing. But in another sense, everything. Because we're about to see that there's going to be some people who are not included and they're cowardly and unbelieving and immoral. They won't follow Christ. But if you want access to this place, and I don't know who wouldn't, I don't know what package deal the world can offer you that even comes close to this. Can you think of any? Uh-uh. The way you get in is you have to drink of the water of life. He's at the well with the woman at the well. Everyone who drinks of this water, Jesus says to her, will thirst again, but I'll give water that's of a different quality. Well, where do you get this water? I'd like to know. Then I don't have to come with this bucket. No. I'm speaking of spiritual things. If anyone is thirsty, John 7, 37, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, out of his inmost being will flow what? Rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, who was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. If you want in to this place, if you want to know the beauty, it's already paid for. It's paid in full. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? Psalm 42, 1 and 2. Are you thirsty? Psalm 46, 4 says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving, be still, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. Psalm 46, verse 10. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah, pause, meditate, think about it. Psalm 63, 1 says, I shall seek thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for thee. To thirst for this water is to thirst for God. Everyone who thirsts, ho, everyone who thirsts, Isaiah 55, 1, come to the waters. You who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money 
and without cost. The price has been paid in full. And the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take of the water of life without cost. Revelation twenty-two seventeen. Will you come? Are you thirsty? Have you been drinking from broken cisterns, trying to find water in all the wrong places? He who overcomes, and the one who overcomes is the one who places faith in Jesus, 1 John 5, 4 and 5, shall or will inherit these things. The overcomer will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. How do you overcome? You believe in Jesus. You, you stay the course. But, and the, verse, the verses end with a warning. But for the cowardly and unbelieving, and the two really go together, the unbelieving become cowardly. They fear everything except what they should fear, which is God. And notice this list, the abominable, speaks of that which is detestable, murderers, immoral persons, uh, we think namely of sexual immorality, sorcerers, we think of witchcraft and so forth, idolaters, and all liars. Now you have to take this list together because it's, it's speaking of unbelievers. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers. This is not believers. This is not what believers do. This is not how believers live. Murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters. This is not believers. They will have their part in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. After this incredible, beautiful description of what is ahead for believers, there's still a warning. You're reading the book of Revelation now? Don't think that you can just live how you want to live and be a professed believer, have a said faith, and think that you're going to end up here. You ain't unless you're a true believer. If you're a true believer, you will persevere. And you will stand for Christ. And some of you, you know, you... you you wonder about yourself at times, just like I do. How strong am I really? How strong could I be? Will I be? If we were part of this generation and had to go through some tough times, how strong could I be? Will I be? Look, it's not your strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He will see you to the finish line. He will bring you safely home into his heavenly kingdom. That's our hope. And this place, oh, 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 get ready. Because it's going to be amazing. I could imagine the spring and the tree of life and what we're going to see in the physical creation, the newness of it, is going to be mind-blowing. Not to mention what we may be able to do beyond just the planet itself. Who knows? But to see God and to have him touch my face. I'm going to, as soon as he touches my face, I'm going to hug him. <laughs> Can I get a witness? <laughs> Father, we are so grateful that we could just bask in the beauty of these verses. They're so beautiful, so hopeful, so encouraging, so true. You've staked your very name and reputation on them. 
And we're so grateful that they answered the deepest questions of life. This is what the, the Christian worldview, the Bible does. It answers the deepest questions of life. Is there life beyond the grave? Yes. Is there a God? Yes. Is there a heaven? Yes. Is there hope in the future of restoration and seeing loved ones again? Yes. And behold, you said, I make all things new. These words are faithful and they are true. Thank you, Lord. As you just uh, take a few moments to let the word be written on your heart to let it percolate deep in your soul to minister to your life to minister to areas where you grieve and have burdens can I just ask you do you know Jesus have you tasted of the water of life have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good if you're not sure you know him tonight just run to him to say, Lord, I want to drink of the water of life. He is that water. He is the bread. Just ask him to save you. Ask him to come into your life. Maybe you need to rededicate your life to Christ tonight. You've been away. You've been trying to find pleasure and water elsewhere, and it's just not satisfying. And, and he knows, and he'd invite you back just to come close to him again. Forsake the things that so easily entangle you. And if you're a believer tonight and you've lost somebody, and these, these verses, I, I pray you just make them your own tonight. I pray that you would just stand upon them in moments when things get dark and difficult and even you feel hopeless. You are not hopeless. You have abiding hope and the promises here are faithful and true. And whenever the enemy or your flesh or your mind come at you and you have doubts or fears, just stand upon what God has said. Thank you, Lord. We all feel weak at times. And sometimes we, we say like the man in Mark 9, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, I pray that you would just refresh faith in the room tonight. Bless your people, encourage them, bring times of refreshing to their lives. In Jesus' name.